Welcome to the Good Money Habits Podcast, where we marry financial education with tips from the experts on how to develop good money habits. Knowing what your options are around your finances is one thing, how to translate the knowledge into action for results is quite another. We're all about helping others take steps to gain financial stability, to live a better life. This podcast is brought to you by Lighthouse Capital. It is important to understand that today's episode is of general nature and doesn't take into account your personal objectives, financial situations or needs and may not be appropriate for you. So the genesis for today's podcast started about three to four months ago back in our boardroom. Um, We share office space with another business and I was having a chat with my colleague David Council about the work we do with retirement planning. And what really jumped out at me when we were chatting was that David was particularly passionate about the mental side of the transition to retirement, not just the numbers side, which is what everyone seems to focus on. So here in the studio today, I'm delighted to have David Council. Welcome, David. (laughs) Thanks, Julia. (laughs) So David's a financial planner and partner of Fitzpatrick's Private Wealth here in WA and has been an advisor for nearly 15 years. He likes to work with individuals, family groups and business owners to help them make great financial decisions that help them lead their ideal lives. David, can you share with me where your passion from financial planning comes from? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much for having me today, Julia. My Um, pleasure. I've been able to work with hundreds of individuals and couples over the years, uh, planning their retirement and transitioning them through retirement. And I've found that the financial aspect of retirement is interesting and great, but I feel the mental side of things is more where I get great enjoyment working with people, helping them through the physical life transition of of retiring and easing their way out of the workforce and um, finding that people are facing a really big dilemma and this is incredibly common now more than ever that uh, they want to be able to do the things that they've always wanted to do. So the big bucket list items that they've always had the passion for and always wanted to do, um, they want to do them now but they also want to make sure that they have enough capital behind the, the scenes so that um, when they're sitting in their retirement village or waiting for the letter from King George by then, that they don't have two <laughs> coins, they've got two coins to rub together. So they don't want to be sitting on millions going shoulda, coulda, woulda, but they also do not want to be sitting there with being desolate. So um, our role is really to try and balance the, these two conflicting wants and needs and um, helping people live uh, the lives that they really want to now and throughout their retirement. Absolutely. And I thought what we might do, if it's okay with you, is break up today into two parts. So I still do want to cover the financial side of retirement um, and account-based pensions and Centrelink and how all of those things work um, um, and decipher, you know, what happens to your super when you retire, what's a safe drawdown, all of those different elements. And then I really do want to take the time and have a good chat about the mental side because I know that's where the real passion sits for you and also (laughs) me. Um, Because I mean, I know that, you know, some people say, into retirement and don't look back. Um, I'm um, many years uh, away from retirement, but I know I'll probably struggle with it more than what my husband will. Like Bernard's got so many different hobbies and things that he's into, he'll be totally fine. But I know for me, I'll probably have to give it a bit more um, forethought leading into it. And I know that some others, you know, other people do find it challenging. Um, So that's what I want to have a look at if that's okay with you. So so let's kick off with the financial aspect. Sounds good. So at what point should people get serious about planning for retirement? Really good question. And there's no real, it's never too late. 
Yeah. That being said, the earlier the better. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, so people really should be giving it a fair bit, a, a lot of thought in their mid-50s. Early to mid-50s, I think, is a good time to really start considering what life looks like when you exit the workforce, both financially and, and mentally. Um, the longer you have leading up from a financial aspect anyway, the, uh, the more power of compounding that you have. So um, it's a lot easier to do heavy lifting over multiple years than it is trying to really race at the end to uh, catch up to where you might need to be from a financial point of view. For sure, and love that you have touched on my favourite thing there, being compounding. <laughs> um, so what does retirement entail financially? You know, when can people access their super? And I might get you to just run through, if you don't mind, how does an account-based pension work yeah. and things like structuring your affairs when people stop work? Yeah, no problem. So structurally from a retirement, people draw their incomes really from two ways. It's from their own asset base and it's from the age pension. So... Mm-hmm. Um, the f- main source of wealth for people in retirement is their superannuation. Yeah. Um, superannuation, there's mandated that work puts in, it's now 10%, which is great. So from over one, the years... From one July. Absolutely, yeah, yeah which is a really mm. good thing. So it means that people are now retiring with far larger superannuation balances than uh, the generations before them. So in terms of superannuation, um, there's accessibility rules that you need to meet before you can go and ask your super fund for their money. Mm-hmm. So... Um, you need to meet your preservation age, which is, oh, it, it's a sliding scale, but for, for the purpose of today, we'll say is 60. Mm-hmm. Um, if you cease an employment arrangement after 60, you can actually access your super. You mm-hmm. can write to your super fund and they'll send a check out with your super balance if you meet that condition of release. Mm-hmm. Um, for most people, they access their super at 65, which is when there's no conditions at all for people to access their superannuation, that like if you're working, working yeah. correct, you can keep on working 65 or better off and you can take everything out if you so wish. So mm-hmm. um, there's some other tr- other strategies that you can employ. Um, a transition to retirement pension if you wanted to, which you can start from 60 to 65, where you can take a little bit out of superannuation. Um, but mainly it's uh, 60 to 65 are the, sure. the, the trigger points for accessing super. Um, generally, I advise our clients or my clients when they're setting up their affairs for retirement is to aim to have as much money in the superannuation system as possible so that you can draw an income from this capital. But on top of this, which is a really important point, is that um, people need to make sure they have some sort of cash buffer or, for use of another word, a slush fund of capital that they can draw on Mm -hmm. should markets become really volatile, should unexpected expenses stick up um, and for lump sum expenses. And generally that amount of money is uh, maybe a year's worth of living expenses, but everyone's a bit different with, with that side of things. So yeah, it'll vary, but that's a good rule of yeah, thumb. Yeah, have a bucket of safety, most of your money in a superannuation fund and draw an income from an account-based pension, which mm-hmm. we'll get to in a second. And of course, you know, the solution will be different for everybody. So Absolutely. we are generalising here, but I, but I think for a lot of people that would mm. be the case and how it would work. And going back to the superannuation, um, oh, the ages that you can access your super, um, talking of um, different people and different times in their lives, if you want to retire early or retire before 60, you have to be really careful because you're not going to be able to access your superannuation. So, so you need another solution. Absolutely. To so super is an important mm-hmm. driver, but in that scenario, it's not the only driver. So um, everyone's a bit different. Everyone's ages are different, work habits, all these sorts of things. So there's a lot of variables that go into it. So account-based pensions, can you... Explain a little bit about yeah. how they work. There's a lot of jargon in our oh, industry. Oh, absolutely. So. And 
the nerdy finance side in Jules and I get excited when we talk about account-based pensions. Sadly, Um, sadly we we do, yes. (laughs) So an account-based pension is still under the superannuation umbrella and it's basically the drawdown phase of your super capital. So Mm -hmm. your super fund now, that's where you put your money into. An account-based pension is where you take your money out of. What gets Julia and all the financial advisors of the world excited is that there's no taxation on the rates of earnings of your capital inside an account-based pension. So compared to super, you get taxed between 10 and 15%. In an account-based pension, that tax rate is zero. In fact, you get paid back. Mm. The government pay you to have these accounts open. They actually will pay you your franking credits back, which is an amazing outcome. And a really unique um, element of the Australian system that doesn't exist in many countries. Yeah, correct. Mm. Correct. So... They're so, um, from a taxation point of view, they're, they're so valuable to people that the government a couple of years ago put a limit on how much money you can actually have in this tax-free environment. So um, They don't want people leaving um, giant inheritances to their children. Yeah, from they, <laughs> they realised that people were using these as a way of uh, not trying to avoid their taxes, but to try and set themselves up in an incredibly tax-effective manner, which doesn't really help the budget too much. So. No. Um, Great tax-free earnings. We want as much money in these accounts as we can. It's mandated by the government that you can only have $1.6 million or at least start with $1.6 million in these environments. And that's rising um, to 1.7, I believe, yeah, from so 1 for, July. Correct. So mm. that'll be 1.7 and it'll go up spasmodically over the years. But with CPI? Yeah, mm-hmm. correct. Um, the downside or it's not, so, uh, it's not a downside, but the government give you this great tax-free environment to have your capital in there, but they make you spend it. So what I mean by that is there's a minimum amount you need to take out each year. Mm -hmm. What does that look like? um, For 60 to 65, it's 4%. North, if you're 65, it's 5%. And um, it increases as you go. And if you're you're lucky enough to still have superannuation or (laughs) to still be around at 95, the minimum drawdown is actually 14%. So They really don't want you to leave anything. No, not at all. (laughs) Not at all. So the government's giving you this tax-free environment, but they're going to make you withdraw that money. And for most people, that works out really well because these withdrawals actually funds your retirement living expenses. That's right. And um, just thinking about then how much you need to retire on, I'm going to ask you the curly question. I know it's uh, not an easy one to answer, (laughs) Um, but how do people figure it out? Is there a rule of thumb? There can be a few different rules of thumb, but they're so broad and everybody's circumstances are incredibly different. So... There's a huge amount of variables that go into the financial aspect of retirement. and um, the so there's no magic number. There's no magic yeah. number, no. Mm. Um, that being said, there are some really important numbers that people should identify and understand. Mm-hmm. And firstly is what your living expenses are likely to be. Um, your living expenses are likely to change over retirement too. So generally people spend more in the early years of retirement and later and less as you get older. Mm-hmm. Um the rule of thumb that I would use for living expenses is the baseline assumption that in the first few years of retirement or your retirement in general, your living expenses are going to be the same as what your living expenses were leading up to retirement. Mm-hmm. So if you were spending $80,000 a year leading up to retirement, rule of thumb is that you're going to spend $80,000 a year in retirement. So there might be a few different tweaks. You might not have parking or mm. travel costs and those expenses. So things will change. The golf club membership will increase, but the en- dry energy. cleaning bills of your suits yeah. might fall, yeah. as an example. Yeah. Um, on top of that, there's increases, expenses in uh, travel and holidays, um, mainly if and when we're able to yeah. leave this great country of ours. <laughs> yes, or indeed. Or state even, for that matter. Yeah. Um, we are in <coughs> WA for <yeah>. the listeners. <laughs> 
there's some great resources around and um, the ASFA website, so ASFA Retirement Standard is a government um, resource that's available to people to have a look at and they quantify what quality of life in retirement looks like and um, they've quoted a comfortable retirement as a, for a couple is having ye- yearly living expenditures of about $36,000 a year and a more moderate retirement lifestyle of 41000 a year. Uh, just for some reference here, the full age pension, which we'll discuss in a bit, is $37,000 a year. So um, the age pension is significantly less than what a comfortable retirement is defined as. So just to be clear here, the comfortable retirement number was 63000 Yeah, okay. Yeah. I think we might have said it um, slightly incorrectly, but it's sixty-three for a comfortable retirement, according to the ASFA retirement standard, and 41000 for a modest lifestyle. And as you said, um, with full age pension being roughly $37,000, um, if you go on to that site, it, it does give you some really good references for the kinds of things that you would be able to expect to afford for that money um, and hence why for a lot of people um, they would genuinely struggle to just yeah. live off the Centrelink pension. Um, another great resource um, for people is the government's Money Smart website which I've referred to on multiple occasions www.moneysmart.gov.au and there is some information and calculators on there yeah. that might be a good, um, good place a to look as well. great resource for people. So have you um, any examples of clients that perhaps had I'm going to say greater expectations than what their numbers of wealth you know told you was viable yeah absolutely um that's something that we see quite often at the moment um we've been lucky enough to work with some clients that have some really great income very large asset bases but they actually can't afford to retire because their living costs are too large of a percentage of their wealth yeah so that can lead to some really interesting and sometimes tough decisions and discussions that we have with people. And um, to be honest, there's only really two outcomes regarding that. And the first one is to reduce your living standards. So reduce your expectations, reduce your capital goals, these sorts of things. And the other one, which is probably less spoken of, is to, okay, increase the level of risk that someone might be comfortable in taking. So, And I guess the choice that people make will be different for everybody, but the real take-out I'm getting from that is the key is understanding whether or not it is realistic or not. Correct. And if not, then you know, some of those choices you yeah. um, said before um, are the reality. Mm. And that's the job because none of us want to get to you know, 75 or 80 and find that the, the jar's empty. Yeah, exactly right. And yeah. that's... Um, the big link between the financial aspect of retirement and the mental or the mentality of retirement, um, they both lead into each other and they both need to be understood really well. Um, because you want to ensure you've got that safety around the numbers to then go on and really do well on the correct. mental side yeah. of retirement. Yeah, that and makes sense. Even on the other end of the spectrum, we've helped uh, people with really minimal financial assets and, and incomes and um, they've lived amazing, fulfilled retirements. Um, purely I've seen so many examples of oh, that. You know, it's, it's amazing. amazing. It really is. Yeah, it's a real misnomer that um, you do need to have, you know, millions to live a good Correct. retirement. It's not necessarily yeah, the And once the financial meets the mental part of retirement, that's um, people can really live meaningful lives, which is fantastic. And um, one other point to, to this discussion is... Um, We've seen a couple of examples in the past where people are using work as an excuse. Mm. And from a financial aspect, they can afford to retire. They can do the things that they say that they want to do. However, they're using their work and employment as a reason not to stop. And 
perhaps scared to stop working? Oh, absolutely. Scared to stop working because mm. they're unsure what the next phase of their life really looks like. Mm. Yeah, for sure. So thinking about that then, is there a safe drawdown rate for people to consider? Yeah, again, it, I'm really hesitant to put an exact number to this because sure. everybody is different and it, there's so many different variables that are floating around with this sort of question. But if people can draw off their – people's living expenses are between 4 and 5% of, of their financial assets. So mm-hmm. I'd define a financial asset as – Everything except the house, cars and contents. Yeah, investment properties, super if, cash. Yeah, 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 correct. If they can live off 4 or 5% of the total quantum of that capital, that capital base should be enough to um, maintain that living expenses index with inflation for their, for their lifetimes. So to put that to <coughs> into some exact numbers, um, if your living expenses are about $80,000 a year, then you might need a... to $2 million asset base behind you to fund that for life, rising with inflation. However, we don't take into account the age pension benefit in that style of calculation. So we'll get to that a bit later on, but the age pension there is a safety net to help people out. Um, And the other really big consideration to, to those numbers are what levels of investment risk people are happy to take. Yeah, I'm glad you've raised that one. So if you're very risk averse, <laughs> mm. you're going to need more capital to fund your retirement. Mm-hmm. Yep, if no. you're happy to take more risk and happy to see your, your money bounce around all over the place, then over a long run period of time, you should have more money than having all your money in a bank account. And that means that um, you can um, fund a bit more investment, a bit more living expenses in retirement. Yeah, I think that's um, some good rules of thumb there and people can go away and maybe have a think about that a little bit more and, and um, would strongly advise people getting advice around yeah, that, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so something that I know I've been getting um, calls, I imagine you have as well, David, is people um, coming to us asking what to do with their cash now that interest rates are so low. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Interest rates, five years ago, you could get a turn deposit with 4 or 5%. Now it's 0.4, of a percent. The good old days. The good old days. <laughs> I've got a mortgage, so <laughs> the good old days are now because our yes, mortgage indeed. rates are ridiculously so low. So make, make hay, people, Absolutely. because we've Absolutely. probably seen the bottom. <laughs> Not, don't quote me, but it does appear that way. But yeah, with low interest rates, people are taking more investment risk than they otherwise would have as a general sort of rule. Well, they're almost forced to. Oh, absolutely. So Mm. we see people that had a CBA turn deposit of half a million dollars and giving them an income of $30,000 a year, and that was enough to fund their affairs. But um, now that income's not $30,000, it's $2,000. Yeah. So people are going, well, I need to either take more investment risk with that capital, make it grow, help it try it grow, or they're going to eat into that investment capital that they have so we are seeing people direct money from um, bank accounts, turn deposits into more growth-orientated assets, which can be an incredibly confronting thing for people to be doing. Absolutely, and I think it's only exacerbated by the longevity risk. You know, people are living longer um, and people don't want to outlive their capital, exactly which is what right. we've, we've sort of yeah. spoken about. So any sort of, um, I guess... Um, basic sort of strategies that people could be thinking about in terms of investing if they do Mm. elect to? So firstly, I'd look at what your investment time frame is and timeline. So um, what I mean by that is the longer you can invest that capital for, the more risk you can actually take with it. So if you need uh, to buy a new car, $50,000 next uh, in two years time, you're not going to be putting that $50,000 into a 
share portfolio. Mm. So as long as you have a long investment time frame, people can take investment risk. Um, and you can do it slowly over time. You don't have to chuck your turn deposit capital from half a million dollars of CBA turn deposit straight into half a million dollars of CBA shares. That's an incredibly risky and confronting thing to be doing mm-hmm. for you're, people. Yeah, you're not diversified. You're no, picking a single moment in time. Exactly yeah, right. So yeah, yeah. Um, some of the terminology that we use, dollar cost averaging, which is slowly invest your money over a period of time as opposed to throwing it in in one foul swoop. Mm-hmm. And investing your capital not just in shares, not just in international shares, but a big diversified bucket of different assets. Yeah. So um, there's various different investments that you can use and pursue that um, don't necessarily mean that all your capital is at risk into equities or it's spread over a wide variety of different assets and different uh, asset classes and different levels of risk. So the old adage, don't have all your eggs in one basket, has been around for a long yeah, time correct. for a reason. So Absolutely. we keep coming back to that. I do just, before we move to the mental side of it, I do really want to look at Centrelink. I feel like a lot of people listening will be interested in how that interacts. Um, it's an important factor. You know, the aim for most people would be to not be totally reliant on Centrelink, as we spoke about earlier. So can you share um, with the listeners your thoughts on that? Yeah, so... The Centrelink system's changed dramatically over the last few years and now more than ever it really needs to be seen as a safety net, not necessarily an entitlement of people. Um, The basis of the system really is the the less assets and income that you have, the larger the benefit that you received Mm -hmm. to a capped sort of amount. So the more money you have, the less age pension you receive, the less money you have, the more age pension you receive. Uh, It's... It's there to help, but it shouldn't be seen as uh, something that should be 100% relied on. As we spoke before, the full age pension for a couple that own their home outright is uh, $37,000 a year. We'll get to some asset tests in a second, but Mm. comparing that to the ASFA $41,000 a year of a um, moderate standard of living Mm. in retirement, it's um, quite significantly below that. Mm, It is. So it's a, a dangerous thing to solely rely on. Um, that being said, it can be a cornerstone part of many people's retirement planning and even though you might not receive the full age pension, you might receive a part pension along the way that can really help um, extend the longevity of your capital and really ex- uh, increase the, your living standards in retirement. So acknowledging that the numbers in regard to the asset limits do change over time, um, what are they currently and, and how does this affect someone's pension entitlement? Yeah, great question. So... Centrelink, in their wisdom, apply two tests, the income test and an assets test. And thankfully, they pick whichever results in the worst outcome for you. Of course they do. (laughs) (laughs) So in terms of this podcast, the assets test is a bit easier to explain. But um, if your assets are less than $880,000... Excluding the family home? Yeah, excluding Mm -hmm. the family home and also excluding funeral bonds. Mm -hmm. If you have a funeral bond of less than $13,000, that's not counted either. Uh, You you will receive $1 in age pension. So that's a couple Mm -hmm. that own their home will get $1 of age pension. On the same side, if your assets are less than $401,000 a year, you will receive a full age pension. Mm -hmm. And anywhere in the middle, people will receive a part pension. 
So a sliding scale that moves per thousand dollars of assets. Correct. Yep. Correct. So as your assets fall, your age pension entitlement increases to a point where you eventually will receive the full age pension when your assets fall below four hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars. So you mentioned earlier that you view Centrelink as more of a safety net rather than an entitlement, and I'm thinking back to 2017 when the government uh, made what felt like some relatively sudden changes to the asset limits, and it did have a pretty material <coughs> impact for some clients. Yeah. Absolutely. And there's a significant amount of legislative risk associated with the Centrelink system and the age, age, uh, age pension system. Um, and it was really seen a few years ago in 2007 where the government reduced the maximum amount of assets that someone could have to receive a pension um, from $1.1 million to then it was 823000 So if your assets were within 1.1 or 823000 you're actually receiving a pension entitlement. Mm-hmm. So it was a pretty generous limit it was, back absolutely. then and, and this was a rebalancing, yeah. wasn't it? And what they did, they in lieu of this, they increased the amount of assets someone can have to receive a full age pension. Mm-hmm. So they reduced the, the maximum and increased the minimum. Got it. Um, and we had clients that resulted in a five to $10,000 a year income loss yeah, overnight. Mm, that's right. And if you're planning on relying solely on the age pension and you're in your 50s, say, there's a very long period of time that people have to get through before you're actually in that system, and mm. things can change, and they can change dramatically. It's a political um, system, and it, um, I can guarantee it's going to change into the future. And we're not trying to scare people with that. Um, that's the other thing I want to say, because Centrelink will always be there in some mm. way, shape, Absolutely. or form, but the reality is that the rules around eligibility and things yeah, like that are likely to change. Yeah, we just don't know what it might look like. That's right. So uh, what we're saying is you need really a margin for error, so don't necessarily rely on it being what it is today. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So are there any traps or mistakes that people make regarding Centrelink and the, and the aged care system? Uh, yeah, that there can be, and... Centrelink in their wisdom are really smart. They've figured out any way that someone can try and hide assets, manipulate their assets to increase their age pension entitlement. Uh, Big Brother is watching. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. They've Mm. got abilities to look at bank accounts, abilities to look at all your assets without you knowing, and it's next to impossible to um, really increase your age pension entitlement except for one way, Um, and that's actually to buy a more expensive house. Mm-hmm. And I've never advised anyone to do that, but that is one way that people mm. could increase their age pension entitlement because a house doesn't count as an asset. Mm. There are a couple of minor tweaks, annuities and things. We won't delve into yeah, those, but you, you, you're hitting on the main one. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of the, the, the big questions we get asked quite regularly is, um, why don't I just give my money to the kids so I can receive more pension? Yes, that comes up a lot. Great idea. Perhaps Ex- not. <laughs> Except Centrelink have thought of it beforehand. (laughs) And you can do that. Your money is your money. You can do whatever you want with it. However, Mm. if you gift more than $10,000 in a year or $30,000 over a five-year period, Centrelink will still count that as an asset in your name for five years. What that means is that you lose the ability to draw on that money. It's no longer yours. It's given to somebody else. And Centrelink, you're going to assume that you still have that, even though you can't access it. So it's a quite a risky, dangerous thing for people to be doing. Um, there's a few other traps as well. So we've seen a few issues with family trusts and how distributions and control over those trusts work. That's a very complicated area. It and you is, need to isn't get it? Specific advice from people about that. Mm. Um, and other issues that are people not updating their their affairs regularly with Centrelink, and that can work both ways. So. Um, 
people we see it quite regularly. People haven't updated the value of their car with Centrelink for three or four years, and mm. all of a sudden it's worth half what Centrelink have registered it as. Um, if they were there updating it regularly, they mm. would have received more age pension along the way. So it's important to keep um, the figures updated on a regular basis. Yeah, mm. correct. Uh, one other strategy that's um, again, Julia and I get excited about is there's two assets that Centrelink don't count when they assess you for age pension purposes. That is your house and it's also a spouse's superannuation account if they're under age pension age. Mm-hmm. So there's a few strategies that people can consider to optimise their uh, Centrelink entitlement by utilising a, a, a spouse under the age of 67 and having more capital in their superannuation Mm-hmm. And it's not about avoiding um, at no. the end of the day. It's um, just more a structuring thing. So at a practical level, um, how should people apply for the age pension? Um, <coughs> practically, uh, as pain-free as you possibly can. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of good luck might be needed. Oh, but, but, it, but it is easier than what it, it used is. to be. It is. It's a, a lot mm. easier than it once was. Uh, we've helped a few clients recently apply online and that process is actually uh, a lot easier than it once was. So... Um, You can apply online through MyGov. So Mm -hmm. MyGov's an online um, access to government entities. Um, So have a MyGov account open, have a Centrelink account linked to that, and you can apply online through that process. Uh, you can actually apply up to 13 weeks before your age of entitlement too. So That's a good tip. Yeah, mm. you, can, you can get in there nice and early. And once you've submitted an application, it can take some time before Centrelink formally approve it. And we see quite regularly that Centrelink will come back and ask you for more information or sometimes they'll ask, well, we've lost this information. Can you provide it to us again? So that gives you the time to make sure yeah, it's all absolutely. in order before the, 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 mm. de- the date, yeah. um, the start so date. Things that you'll need when you're applying for it are, um, really Centrelink will want to know everything about you. So they want to know proof of all your assets, bank mm-hmm. account details, bank statements, super statements. Um, and they'll want to know a lot of details about your identity too and life up to this date. So they want to know travel history, immigration details, current previous partners, all these sorts of things. So quite a bit involved. Um, so good idea to make sure you're prepared before you start the application. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, I really do want to make sure we've got time for the transition side, which is what we're all excited about. But there's a couple of other really important things I think it is worth taking the time to work through. One is the pension loan scheme, David. I feel like this is mm. overlooked, <coughs> it's underutilised. Can you explain how that works? Absolutely. So... I feel as a country, people need to be encouraged more to access capital inside their houses. <coughs> and the pension loan scheme is a great way of doing that. So it, it, it's similar to a reverse mortgage. And I know reverse mortgages have a horrible name, but um, it's basically entering into an agreement with Centrelink, with the government to top up your pension payments. And you can top them up up to 150% of the full age pension. So that can give a couple who are on the full age pension of $37,000 the ability to increase that 37000 to about hundred, uh, about $55,000. Mm-hmm. Sure. So a, a Getting much closer to that increase. comfortable Absolutely. level. Yeah. yeah. And they do that by entering to this pension loan scheme with Centrelink and the government and you're basically borrowing against the equity in your house to fund those extra income payments. So it's definitely not a free ride. Centrelink do charge you interest on the on the loan and that loan will build over time, but it will be repaid when you, when you either sell the house or when you pass away. So this is about the government recognising that for a lot of people they might have 
you know, a home that they love, they've grown up in, they feel comfortable in, they don't want to be forced to downsize necessarily. Correct. Um, so this is a way to unlock some of that capital. It can let people live in their own home for longer. Yep, that's what it's about. This is really powerful. Yep. Um, the flip side of that is the downsizer um, scheme, actually. <laughs> so let's talk about, I guess, people who are thinking, no, no, I'm finding my home a bit too much. You know, mm. I can't manage the garden anymore. Um, but, you know, what what are my options? Yeah, so this is the exact opposite of the pension loan scheme. And yep. this is the government giving people the ability to direct um, released capital from a home sale back into the superannuation environment. And we spoke of our uh, nerdy... Um, positivity about account-based pensions and how great they are from a tax point of view. We love this one too, don't we? <laughs> and this works really well as well. So yeah. um, it allows uh, people to put up to $300,000 each. So if there's a couple, $600,000. Pretty generous. Back into the superannuation environment, regardless of your work status, regardless of your current superannuation balance as well. And you have the ability to direct that into these tax-free account-based pensions if your circumstances meet that. And I believe even here, um, the recent budget, it has yet to pass legislation, but they're hoping to reduce the eligible age to 60 years old. Correct. So yeah. once this starts and is legislated, people between the age of 60 and 65 really have a huge ability to put large sums of capital into superannuation because mm-hmm. um, that's matched with the other contribution rules that were spoken about previously. And in the previous um, podcast where we talked about the super accumulation phase, um, this, these contributions don't count towards the concessional or non-concessional contributions. They're a, a separate contribution in their yeah. own right. So, so there are terms mm. and conditions that you need to meet. You need to yes. own the home for 10 years. It needs to be your principal place of residence and things like that. Um, yep. But again, a, a really great um, way of people to direct more money into superannuation and to help fund their retirement. Fantastic. Um, I really want to get to this mental side, but before we do, any other entitlements you think are important to share? Yeah, there's a few others that are around. So firstly, there's the state government seniors card, which all of the estates of Australia have. Mm -hmm. There's various different um, ways of qualifying for this. WA, you have to be over 63 and be working less than 25 hours a week. Um, And that gives you entitlements to cheaper public transport, discounted activities, discounted rates, all those sorts of things. and on top of that, there's a, a healthcare card that the government provide people for that people that don't qualify for the age pension but don't have millions in a bank accounts and assets. So it's called the Commonwealth Commonwealth Seniors Healthcare Card, and it's that's income assessed. Um, so a very different assessment to the Centrelink age pension. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Um, so if your assessable income for a couple is less than eighty nine thousand dollars a year, you'll qualify for this Commonwealth Seniors Healthcare Card and. Uh, I, I had a one client that I remember forever. He was he lived off a very low income, so he had a large asset base that he wanted to to direct to his family when he passed away. He mm-hmm. had a family member living in a in a rental property, basically rent free. So his asset base meant that he didn't qualify for the age pension, but he had next to no income coming in. He had a terminal liver condition, and he was able to qualify himself for the Commonwealth Seniors Healthcare Card. And what that meant was that his monthly scripts fell from $1,200 a month to $25 a month. Yeah, those pharmacy script savings can be huge. So this card Mm. extended his life by six months. So it can be incredibly important. Yeah, that's amazing. Fantastic. Okay, let's pause. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I hope that's been helpful um, to those of you listening um, and has perhaps... um, 
deciphered or explained a little bit about the interaction um, of account-based pensions with Centrelink, etc. Uh, let's delve into this mental side. This is the Absolutely. exciting bit, you know. This yeah. is what I want to d- dig into. So I'm um, taken back to a comment um, or a tip that Grant Hackett shared in a recent podcast. And it was his dad's advice during his swimming career was that he should always remember that it's important to retire to something, not from something. David, what's been your experience with helping clients? Yeah, we're in a position where... I'm in my mid-30s and I've been able to help hundreds of people through this process. So I feel it's quite a, a rich thing, someone that's relatively young, talking to people about how to structure their affairs and what to do in retirement. But um, we, we focus a lot on the financial aspect and um, I feel that mentally the mentality of retirement is almost taboo and it's really unspoken. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really quite it, it interests me. It's not just about the financial aspect, but it's about the mental aspect of people stopping work. The first thing that people do when you meet someone new is, hi, I'm David, oh, I'm a financial planner. We define mm. ourselves as a society by what we do. That's right. Now, how do people then define themselves when they're not, they've retired or stopped work? It's a really confronting thing that people face. And um, it's uh, something that we need to replace with something else. So yeah. like Grant Hackett's father, you need to retire to something. Mm. Humans need things to do. We, we need a purpose, something that gets us out of bed in the morning. And for a lot of us, that is that is work. And what does that look like once work has stopped? So um, there was a really good article, this is a couple of months ago now, by Gary Martin in the West that covered this topic. And I feel that many people don't give enough respect and um, concentration to their retirement considerations and what they're going to do with their lives when they stop. Yeah, and Gary Martin, I believe, is the CEO of the Australian yeah, Institute correct. of Management here in WA. And nice to see that in the, in the press. I know that when we spoke about this, um, you mentioned that you went hunting for some resources to steer people towards, and there was virtually nothing out there. It, there's, <laughs> there is very little that yeah. you can find all day long financial records, fina- uh, research, papers on financial aspects of retirement. Yeah. In terms of the mentality of retirement it's a lot less available for people. Yeah, so something, an area that really needs to be addressed, so an important conversation that we're having today. Um, And, you know, everybody's different. Some people do sail into it and just do beautifully. You know, I think about within my client base, there's a few stories that really resonate for me. Um, One is a client of mine um, who lives out um, about an hour and a half east of Perth. Um, and um, she sadly lost her partner. She'd been um, his primary carer um, for a few years. He'd suffered for many years from dementia, and when I went to visit her for her annual review, I wasn't really sure what I was going to find. I was a little bit nervous, and not nervous, but I was concerned for her, and and when um, I saw her, she was so excited to take me around the back and show me these hundreds of seedlings that she's growing, and I'm looking at her going, Rosie, what are you doing? And she explained to me that um, one of her sons lives further south in the Denmark region and she has a small land holding there with a transportable and she explained that there's a particular native bird that's endangered um, and it's endangered because of tree felling of a particular type of tree that that bird needs for survival so there she was with I'm going to say hundreds if not thousands of seedlings <laughs> that she intends to that's go and amazing. plant on her property right yeah. so it's interesting the the things that people do I mean you'd have stories too I've got another client who sent me in the mail a book um, of his life story that he wanted to share with me and you know others that get together on riding groups I've got another group of clients um, um, often we grow organically by re- 
referral. So um, I've got three clients that play together in a band in retirement. That's so, great. you know, it's sort of interesting. The, so the so having that purpose is mm. so important. And I guess the point I want to stress here is it doesn't matter what the purpose is. Mm. So we can hear great stories like your client growing the seedlings. Yeah. And that's a phenomenal purpose. But people don't have to have that same purpose. It can be no matter what you want yeah, to do. It that's can be it. the purpose could be that you want to go play golf with your mates every two or three days every week. Fantastic. And that, that's fine mm, too. You absolutely. just need something. It doesn't yeah. matter what it is. So where do you see the best outcomes? What strategies or, you know, thought processes have you seen work best? Yeah, great question. Um, the best outcomes that we've seen are when people are able to slowly exit from the workforce. So that's going from five days a week to four days a week to three days a week. And by doing this, it allows people to have more time. Um, You're still defining your place in society as a plumber and accountant and engineer, but you've got time to explore other things that might interest you. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've got time to start playing golf every week. You've got time to see friends more, start volunteering somewhere spend more time with family and grandkids and it gives people a chance to develop a life away from work before they stop work and you can start to figure out what your new purpose is going to be when you do formally stop. Yeah, for sure. Are there any stories that stand out for you where I guess the transition might have been underestimated or, you know, where people don't necessarily have the option to transition? Yeah, and it, um, in, in general, there's a few demographics of people that we work with that tend to struggle a lot more with this than others. And mm-hmm. the main people that jump to mind are the wealthy corporate types mm-hmm. of the world. So these individuals, incredibly wealthy, the financial aspect of retirement isn't an issue. They've been able to build up enough capital over the years to um, see them out from a financial point of view. But they've, they go from working 80 hours a week, being the centre of the business universe, people looking up to them, them guiding people, leading people, uh, to almost to a point where they become addicted to the position of power and more, more so addicted of people looking up to them and relying on them. Mm-hmm. And it's these corporate roles that aren't suited to a slow exit. So these roles are all of no, all or nothing types. It's either mm. 80 hours a week or it's nothing. It's cold turkey. It's cold mm. turkey. They don't mm. have the ability to go, okay, well, this year I'm only going to work four week, four days a week, three days a week, like other other people and other occupations might have. And the retirement outcomes have nothing to do with money at all. Um, they're very financially well, wealthy, but they struggle to find their new why in initial retirement because it's just cold turkey straight straight away and off you go. And they wouldn't have had the time if they're working, yeah. you know, big hours to maybe yeah, exactly give it the right. thought that it needs, which yeah. which leads my my. Th- thoughts to another um sort of area which is gray divorce (laughs) (laughs) it's so sad um yeah and it's gray divorce is um people divorcing over the age of 60 and it's really increased dramatically over the last 10 years and people are finding all of a sudden they're now face to face with their partner for the last 30 or 40 years all day every day and it Mm. (laughs) leads to people separating yeah (laughs) i've I've had um, one client return back to the workforce three times (laughs) (laughs) there you go yeah um so and again, easing your way out of the workforce, easing your way into your new life, easing your way into um, becoming a, a member of your family's lives again is a mm. really important thing to be doing. So what else could people be doing? Really good question. Um, ra- ra- raising the 
retirement mindset and mentality really early on is a really important piece that people should do. Mm -hmm. And it can be as simple as starting to talk to people about it and talk to family, talking to friends. And by talking about it actually identifies that it might be an issue and that's really the first step of overcoming everything. And people should give as much thought to the retirement outcomes of their lives and what their new why is going to be as they do the financial aspect of retirement. Um, easing your way out of the workforce works really well. Speaking to loved ones, talking to talking to people about stopping work, talking to people about who have stopped work, ex-colleagues of yours, mm-hmm. talking to them how they went about it, talking to them about their lives. Um, even being open to changing jobs. So the high flyers of the world might stop cold turkey, but there's nothing stopping them from going going to work at Bunnings one day a week, two days a week. And, and there's a lot of those. I know. <laughs> Bunnings has a lot of millionaires working for them. They just don't realise it, that people have either retired or they've stopped their job and want to go back to work. And um, they think of nothing better than talking about tools and gardens to people one, two, three days a week. It's amazing. Yeah, I love it. Um, David, we are out of time. I do want to sincerely thank you. Oh, thank you. Um, it was um, fortuitous that we had that conversation in the boardroom yeah, a few absolutely. months ago. And it was interesting that we both um, instantly had a really shared, you know, strong sense that this was something that we should be raising and getting people to think about. They probably mm. are anyway. But I think part of it is um, for people to um, take some comfort about the fact that if if this is something they are concerned about they're not alone oh absolutely um and just yeah yeah a lot of people go through it and having feelings of initial retirement struggles from a mental point of view or the mental uh mentality of retirement isn't an uncommon thing and people shouldn't be fearful about talking about it i'm sure everyone goes through these sorts of things and if I may say, it's actually one of the joys of our profession is, you know, we're in a privileged position Absolutely. to watch people do that and to support them on that journey and find their way. Yeah. Thanks again. Thank for, the, you. for those listening, um, if you enjoyed today's podcast, um, if I could just ask if you don't mind liking or sharing or telling your friends, um, this may not be a topic that's relevant for you right now, but you might have parents or grandparents or someone you know. Um, so please feel free to share it. Um, and thank you for listening in. Thank you. That was another episode of Good Money Habits brought to you by Lighthouse Capital. A reminder that this episode was general in nature and doesn't take into account your personal objectives, financial situation or needs, and therefore may not be appropriate for you. It is recommended that you seek professional advice before making any significant financial decisions. If you want to find out more, this podcast is available on Apple Podcasts or head to www.lighthousecapital.com.au.